Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Drew Meredith, welcome to this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast. Glad to be back. Glad to be back. Where you been all week? Where you been doing? Sydney, from memory. (laughs) (laughs) We had a nice flight cancellation, shifted to the 5pm return flight and then managed to shuffle our way onto an earlier flight. Wait, you were going to fly home today at 5pm? 9.30 cancelled. They put us onto an alternate 5pm flight. Oh, wow. Yeah, right. So we're recording this uh, in the afternoon on Friday. We're a bit, uh, a bit late to this one, but uh, it's coming out tomorrow. So that means every single thing that we mention in this podcast should be, no, it won't be accurate, but incredibly topical. <laughs> yes, it's going to be topical. Uh, but no, we are back for two cents. We're answering questions. This is our second Q&A session on the Australian Investors Podcast. We have questions from ethical investing through to some direct companies, a REIT. Uh, we've got lithium uh, a bunch of other stuff, when to invest a lot of money, uh, f- one weird one that's come through I have no idea about. But um, we take any and all questions. If you just head to the Rask website, any of the Rask websites in the menu, there's a thing that says ask a question. Depending on which podcast of ours you listen to, you will be able to get your question answered. And extra points for creative names, which we've got a few here. Uh, one of them is very familiar to me, so I know who that is, even though they did use their pseudonym. Um, so yeah, we'll just get stuck into the questions. Like I said, if you have, um, if you want to send them through, if we do answer your question, we don't know your personal situation. So any and all information, as the disclaimer would have said, is limited to general financial information only. If you want to get one-on-one advice, you will have to speak to a financial planner, say like Drew over here. And that financial planner will be able to help you out and recommend strategies that are tailored to your situation. We are not doing that on the podcast. Unfortunately, we cannot. So, first question, Drew, comes from Aiming Ethical. And on brand, the question is, I would love an in-depth review of DZZF. DZZF being the ETF from BetaShares, which is a diversified ETF offering ethical exposure. So, what that means is it's an ETF with other funds inside of it. So, if you think of an ETF like a basket, this is a basket of a basket. Uh, because inside of it, you've got three different funds. You have an ethical Australian shares ETF, an ethical uh, global shares ETF, and a an green bond ETF. 
I don't know if you know much about this. I don't, but just brought it up. Okay. Um, I, I tend to, where as soon as it goes to ethical or ESG, I tend to be concerned when it's uh, index. So mm-hmm. beta shares would be, they'd be investing into some sort of sustainable or uh, ESG screened index. And I just don't think the, the risks of the, the ESG and ethical considerations can be covered by the kind of screens that generally go in there. But then I did see it was uh, approved by RIA, so Responsible yeah. Investment Association of Australasia. We just got off a call with the CEO of that group, and they're super impressive. They demand full transparency of every fund that they uh, are, are assessing hmm. um, and continued transparency of their holdings. So when I see that, well, that actually piques my interest mm. a bit more. Yeah, it's normally a pretty good stamp. Uh, interestingly, when we did a survey on ethical investing, I think it was in the Australian Investors Podcast not too long ago. Maybe it was like, actually, I want to say not too long ago, about two years ago. Um, it was interesting because I think at the time, it was around about 62% of respondents said that they wouldn't trust something just because it has a stamp on it. Yeah. But the RIAA is the kind of leading authority on this type of thing. And of all the ethical ETFs that I follow, I think- the beta shares, not only are they the biggest, they're also one of the best in terms of their criteria. Yeah. So they they it even though everything here is basically negative screening, meaning that the ETFs screen out you know, sin stocks and there's like different thresholds within this ETF. This ETF actively seeks out companies that are doing the right thing as well. Yeah. And the idea of DZZF, which is the diversified fund, is it's a direct competitor to the Vanguard funds like VDHG in particular that do not have an overlay. The thing that's good about DZZF is it just offers exposure to Australian domiciled ETFs. And 90%. Yeah. 90% growth, um, 10% uh, bonds. Curiously, when we looked at this at the time, I don't know, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. I was trying to pull them up before the show. But when we looked at this, the the bond ETF, which is G bond G B and D B and D, yeah. I think there was only one bond at the time in the top ten that was different to the the non ESG the non ESG <laughs> one. Um, That's the challenge, isn't it? Particularly in fixed income and in Australia, yeah. and there's right. only a small amount of issuers. Yeah. yeah. So that's. And the thing is, you can go and get the IAF ETF, which is yeah. the iShares Core Composite, um, which is the leading bond ETF. Uh, but the, the thing that's really good about this is if you invest in FAIR or ETHI, the two equities-focused ones, yep. they cost you more separately than this does in one. On its own, yeah. So that's kind of drawing you in. The only thing I kind of see is whether you'd use this as, a only, as your only holding because the one, the, one of the challenges you have with an ethical or an ESG screen is that it naturally tilts towards certain sectors. So you yeah. get a style bias and you can see the top holdings are 24% in- IT and nearly 20% in healthcare. So it's like the opposite concentration of the ASX. Mm, yeah. Um, with much more in that high growth, the, the the stuff that's fallen off pretty heavily this year. So you might be looking at how do you balance that sector weighting if you're putting this in a broader portfolio, why you might not want it all in one. Yeah. And the thing is, right, um, that, that style bias is currently coming to the fore because- they're underperforming. They're underperforming and yeah. smoked, right? So, whereas we're looking at coal stocks and we're looking at iron ore and massive dividends, huge buybacks. Yeah. It's a- Gas and oil. Yeah. So, that is the risk. People are finding- This is the flip side of it. Two years ago, it was all you know, rainbows and whatever. Yeah. Now, it's coal. Yeah. <laughs> so- For the short- I think it's going to be for the short term anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you just have to be wary that- 
these things will be their, their growth. So if it's a bad period for growth stocks and growth styles or fast growing companies because interest rates are increasing, it, it'll struggle in those periods. Yeah. yeah. And you do see um, within the uh, within the fair ETF, the Aussie one, um, it's 4.2% Telstra. Um, you got a lot of healthcare names in the top holdings there. So it's not yeah. a lot different. Yeah. And if you go to um, Ethi being the global, you got Apple, still the biggest. Uh, you got Home Depot, Visa, MasterCard. I, to be honest, Drew, I probably wouldn't have this as the only. Yeah. I could maybe think about that with VDHG, but not DZZF. I just, it's probably not diversified enough. Yeah. I'd agree as well. Yeah. But it is like if you're thinking of this ETF, uh, whoever you are, uh, and if you're just listening and you're looking at uh, an ethical focused ETF and you own Ethi and you own FAIR, well, you could consider this because it kind of re- rebalances it. It offers, you know, pretty compelling fee load. So not bad. Like out of all the ETFs on the ASX, there's 200 and whatever. It's not, not overly expensive either. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah. So for a core holding, um, yeah, it could do worse. Okay. Great question from Amy Ethical. Next one is Will Halp, and Halp is spelled H-A-L-P. Thoughts on small slash mid-cap Oztech with enough cash runway to profitability as reasonable investments at the moment? Question mark. Some personal favorites in the area are WSP, which is Whisper, RMY, which is... don't know off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, and Dubber, D-U-B. The, however... Don't RMA re- Global. Uh, what? RMA Global. No, I don't know the business. Um, Online digital marketing. I don't really fit the bill and I do share your views, Reed Dubber. However, remain bullish should they discover the scalability that is mentioned every quarter. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean- do you- so What's your view on Dubber? Not good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think always think devil's advocate when it comes to this. I'm like- no offense to these companies and who's invested into them, but you can buy NVIDIA, the biggest chip company in the world, 60% cheaper than it was less than 12 months ago. Yeah. I'm more likely to go buy NVIDIA or Alphabet, all these stocks that have fallen 30 to 60% um, that have massive global addressable markets than look and look incredibly closely at, at Australian kind of smaller listed companies. Yeah. Um, it's just challenging. You, know, you can know a company like you need to know a company like that better than anyone when you're investing into it. I've seen we all love the story and they've they've always got great stories and great products, but you don't know how that you know what the catalyst is to finally get that to to yeah. fruition. Profitability is one thing. Um, it's very hard to predict, uh, and you can you know you might get everything right and then the market goes the other yeah. way and you lose sixty or seventy percent. Yeah, um, I think that's the thing, right? So. I don't know. I've mentioned this a little bit in the last few weeks. I was chatting to some fundies earlier on this week and I just, you know, just lurking. And uh, I found like a lot of people are reflecting currently on their lessons learned from the GFC. And one of the lessons that keeps coming out of it is that they keep bringing up at this time is my regret back then was not buying high quality companies. Now, that's not to say they're going to have the same market environment as we did then. But during uncertainty is when you get the opportunity to move into businesses that you might not otherwise get the chance. Yeah. And so at any one time, I just think you've got to allocate accordingly. And I, I tend to think that Whisper is an interesting business, to be honest. Um, its big brother is Twilio in the US, and that's actually down 78% year over year. Yeah. Um, 12 billion, 13 billion market cap US for Twilio. 
Whisper um, being bespoke in what it does, um, $85 million market cap. Yeah. Um, I can't really comment on the other business, but I don't mind Whisperer and I don't mind Twilio in particular. I like, I really do like Twilio as a business. I think the idea of it's a great business. The one thing to note with Twilio is that it shouldn't get the same profit multiple as, say, Trade Desk or some other technology company like Salesforce. Yeah. The reason being is its economics aren't as good. Uh, should have just started with what these businesses actually do. Um, Twilio and Whisper, they do unified communications basically. So it's not really unified, but it's basically like if you ever get the, the it, like you put in your information when you sign up to something online and then you get sent a text message to confirm a two-factor authentication. If you get a message from uh, Uber when the, the Uber says, I'm here and it goes to your phone, yep. that gets sent through Twilio. Yep. And that that's a great service because it can be billed on usage and it can be billed into subscriptions. Yep. Really interesting platform model because, mm-hmm. and like all of the, if you get an email from Rask, um, like let's say you reset your password or you do something like that, that all comes via Twilio. Yep. And so that's how, you know, as like the say- Infrastructure. Infrastructure. The internet, yeah. Yeah. As say the Rask business grows, we're going to be paying Twilio more and more and more as we grow because there are going to be more emails, there's going to be more transactions. Yeah. So- that's the basic use case for it. And I think it's a really good business. It's just that the economics, it works out that the margins aren't as good. Yeah. So if I was looking at Whisper, the thing that I'd be looking at right beside it is Twilio. And to be honest, Twilio is a real, I think it's an impressive business. I don't, uh, will help. I, I know uh, you've, you've got some of my views on Dubber. Um, I just, yeah, I, it's just one of these businesses that, it, I think it needs a management change to actually pull Great back. concept. Like, incredible. Yeah. So many good concepts. I mean, what we've always uh, probably said in here in the past that most of our clients are retirees. So, when we look at these type of assets, we actually think this is an area in the market where active managers can add significantly. Mm. So, they might they, they can get better access to management. They can ask when people are being pushed out or, <laughs> or ask for them to be pushed out if, if that needs to be it needs to be done. Um, so we tend to find a micro cap or a pre-IPO investor that can get access to the placements. You know, a lot of these companies are raising capital. So if you can get access to a placement or a pre-IPO, you can get it cheaper than, yeah. than what's on the market in a lot of a lot of the time. So we kind of use that within portfolios. Um, and it's, I mean, proven small companies and micro caps are where active managers have actually consistently outperformed Absolutely. compared to large caps. Especially here in Australia. Yeah. Um, but there's, there's so yeah. much information asymmetry in yeah. this market. Yeah. yeah. As much as ASIC didn't just hear that. Um. <laughs> well, you can just tell, like, it's like a small business. Yeah, they're, they're listed, but they're still acting like small businesses. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And some yeah. of them only have 30 employees. Yeah. You know, these are small businesses. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so don't mind Whisper. I think I've just got to do a bit more work. I think Claude Walker from Rich Life has written about it quite a bit. Um, there have been a few others. Uh, Lachlan Burgensen on RAS Media has written about it a bit. I think that Whisper is a really interesting business. I don't like Dubber. I think it's got a lot of change that's needed and I think there's still a fair bit to uh, get unwound there before. You know, if it hits that scalability, if it's just take devil's advocate, if it, if it hits scalability, sure, it's going to be a wonderful investment. It's going to bounce off the bottom. Yeah. But for the most part, I just, yeah, um, it's kind of an avoid for me. And it costs money to scale. And oh, it's hard yeah. to get money at the moment. Well, that, they were lucky. They did a $100 million capital raising at peak, you know. Peak fell. Yeah. yeah. And- they were going to make acquisitions and now they're not doing that anymore. 
because yeah, they probably should be. <laughs> well, then now would be the time to go and deploy capital if you were um, interested in that. Actually, that's a good segue into the next, well, not the next question, but an interesting question, which is from Striven Bosky. <laughs> is that how you pronounce I it? So. <laughs> Striven Bosky says, assuming you're all set up as a f- sophisticated investor, how does a new investor get access to VC circles and deals? I think there is actually a there's a like a loophole, isn't there? Early stage venture capital that you that retail investors can go into some there VC are. deals at the moment, and not just the possibles and those sort of groups, but you can actually there's certain strategies that are approved for small amounts of retail investors. There's like the there's obviously the Equitize platform. Yep. Um, what's the other big one? I should know something. Possible is one I've looked Possible. at, but I can't remember the. Yep. Yeah, because Sometimes. this is where um, Booktopia raised. Yep. Before IPO. Uh, it's where a bunch of other businesses have gone, and you can. They're some, sometimes they're tiny businesses, yeah. And they, I think they can have up to fifty shareholders, and you like, get product before they become well. yeah, limited. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah, you can. So you can invest. And I remember looking at one brand. It was um, eco-friendly lipstick. Right, it was a bit out there. Like, let's be honest, it's at the far end of the risk curve. Um, but that's VC, right? Yeah. And this yeah. was a founder-run business, had a pretty well-credentialed uh, CFO. And when you invested, if every thousand bucks you got something, um, and it was got some free lipstick. For you. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, well, it's all vegan approved. Um, so you could actually get involved in it. But for the most part, like some of the deals, and you're not going to get access if you're an individual, yeah, sophisticated investor. You're just not going to get access. You could probably go to the um, the incubators yourself. Pitch liter- nights. Yeah. yeah, literally. PwC, all the KPMG, all do these pitch nights. Yeah. where they bring companies out pitching directly to investors. Yeah, just rock uh, up if you're a sophisticated investor, or if you're not, and you just want to go along. Just go along. There's no gates. Yeah, yeah. just um, because people do that. Like I speak to, I've spoken to over the years, uh, quite a number of retired investors that all of a sudden you know they're not working anymore. They've got a bit of money, and they think, well, I want to get involved in these exciting new companies. Yeah. Just go along. And help them out a bit too. Yeah. A lot of, if, a lot of them work in the companies or try yeah. to provide them with guidance. Well, they sit on like non-executive uh, roles, yeah. you know, as director. They might buy f- 5% of the company and support them to, through networking and whatever. And that's actually a really good way to get involved if you are an experienced person yeah. um, in whatever profession. You can actually go on and get involved with these younger businesses and it's really exciting stuff. Put some capital at risk. Yeah. And we, to be, you get better valuations, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, buying it. You know, private Next market, thing, yeah. early stage. Yeah, early. Like, you're going massive risk reward, though. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, a lot of I think 90% end up not making it. So, if you find ones that do, you're doing well. And then the other one, it depends if you're looking at VC deals and it's all direct like that. If your advisors are otherwise a, a kind of conduit to the big VC strategies like the square pegs and the mm. air trees, that's all basically done through the financial advice networks now. It's very difficult to get direct, and usually good advisory groups would have. An allocation to the next fund that they can they can call on yeah. and distribute between their clients. I wasn't sure if primary market. Have you heard of primary markets? Uh, They're no. kind of doing this platform for unlisted and private company stock. Remember Animoca Brands? I think yeah, was yeah. On there. Um, I wasn't that sure was, if that they're was in listed. VC or not. That was, was listed, and they got kicked off <laughs> the ASX, and now they're like multi-billion dollar valuation. Um, really? I think. They, that might be an interesting VC way because, you know, virtual gaming worlds and a mocha. Yeah, they do blockchain games and Web3 and whatever. Yeah. yeah. And it's a platform that you can use. 
Um, I haven't looked closely at it, not recommending it, um, <laughs> but it's just been popping up lately. There's actually a article on the RASC website that actually talked about this because this was all the rage a few years ago. Yeah. Um, so crowdfunding platforms are, are a big way to get involved in these small businesses. So we the brand that I was thinking of before is Birchall. Yeah, yeah. Birchall, that's the one. I bought some random things off there before, like yeah. the, the honey machine or the- <laughs> Yeah. Uh, Beehive. Virtual Equitize on market. Some of the names you'll probably know of. Um, and there's like this, this guide goes through how to get involved in these businesses. But it's really interesting. And you just got to remember that you are investing in very, very early stage businesses. A lot of them maybe not even have an office. So that's how early some of them can be. But by the same token, some of them can be Booktopia. Yeah. You know, massive. So- um, really interesting stuff. I actually did an interview with um, Equitize early in the days when they just started. So it's actually on this channel, the Australian Investors Podcast. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes to that guide on crowdfunding and the risks involved in Australia. But that's definitely the way to think about getting involved if you can't access the VC funds. Um, okay, here's a good one. Canadian Aussie, aka Trevor. Love the new format. What's been your favorite investing loser and what did you learn? A company you loved and maybe still do. Kind of a favourite loser, can you? <laughs> uh, with distance. With, yeah. <laughs> um, but maybe, you know, maybe you, you've lost a lot in it. So. Is this a psychology like session? We need, yeah, we need, yeah, this is a coming into the, uh, this is the studio oh, where you come in and you confess. Yeah. And you <laughs> All your repent. investment sins. Yeah, I've got a few. So. I should put my hands up because it's like. You know, catching falling knives would be <laughs> would be my saying for every time I've lost money in the market. Can I speculate what? Maybe this isn't your favorite. It's three. I'm going to guess. Well, if you've got three, I'm guessing one of them is Newix. Yes, <laughs> that's the first one. Okay. What are the? I don't. Oh, Magellan. Yes. <laughs> if you get three out of three, I'm walking out. I'm, I'm leaving. <laughs> it's more recent. Last. <clears throat> oh, you said it recently. Zip. Yeah. You got all three. <laughs> yeah. you? They're all down 85%. So, yeah. Thanks. Oh, so good. Uh, sorry. And all, all of them after that already fallen 50. All oh, right. So, yeah. so that's fallen, catching falling knives. If there's a lesson from all of that, never catch a falling knife. Oh. In person yeah. and in market. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So which ones <clears throat> of those? Okay. You got a few there. Which one's your favorite? I like Zip because I made money at it before I lost it. Okay. <laughs> like that was did a trade. Did you sell though yeah. or did you just hold it and then- I traded. So okay. I, I bought it 50 cents, sold it three bucks, uh, six bucks, bought it three, sold it 10, bought it six, still got it at less than one. Um, <laughs> I did end up on top with it, but oh, th even bad. that itself is a lesson that when things like this are running, take profits and get yourself to basically a yeah. no loss position if you're going to play in this stuff. And the other lesson is- Stop losses on non-blue chip stocks, always. Mm. That was um, a big lesson from a lot of investors out of the GFC, obviously. Yeah. Particularly on losses. Yeah. yeah. Particularly if it's outside the A600. Yeah. Um, I like it. Um, so- What was yours? Well, I've got, if, I, if we're going to do three, I'll share three. Um, Slater and Gordon has to be up yeah. there. That bloody thing. Um, that's just- And the worst thing was, was that- and Slater & Gordon's a law firm in Australia, for those people that don't know, and it went into the UK and then just blew up. Um, <laughs> it bought Quintus, oh, not Quintus, uh, the start of a queue, I can't remember the- Quindell. Quindell, yeah. yeah. Quintus was the um, 
TFS Corp. The Indian Standard. That was number two. Thankfully, I didn't get involved in that asset play. No cash. Um, so, um, no, nah, Slater and Gordon. The worst thing about it was I. This is when I was early in my journey, and I was investing my mum's money. Yeah, and I, that was the biggest position. It was ninety five percent. Then a recap. <laughs> you work out what a recapitalization is when that happens. I bought it uh, two bucks. I think she, via me, bought in at about six bucks, and I think it got to seven and then fell. Yeah. So, uh, and yeah, I mean that's the and one of the risks is that when you talk about this stuff publicly is that people do follow you in, and that's the worst feeling. Yeah. That's why most good investors don't talk publicly about their investments because yep. they just don't want the to feel that weight. So that'll be number one. Um, I mean, I've had some real bad ones. Like Dubber's got to be up. Dubber's probably the worst mistake I've ever made for one of our membership services. Just because I completely, I was baking in like for two years, I baked in 30% top line growth with scalability kicking in and none of those things happened. No. <laughs> so I basically, if you went down my DCF and you went down the income statement, you could probably just put a cross next to every forecast. <laughs> every assumption. <laughs> yeah. So, what do they say about us? Assume. Yeah, that's um, Max and us of you and me. Um, and the third one is actually this is probably the biggest lesson that I've learned on investing in high growth companies. Is actually I sold Nearmap. Yeah. And I sold Nearmap. It was my by far my biggest position by like actual investments. Yeah. And I sold that at fifty four cents because I got impatient, and then it went to like three or four bucks. Because I, the only reason is I got impatient and I just let, like I was taking my cue from the share price. And the, I did the numbers one day and I realized that if by dollar value, by far the worst investments I've ever made are the ones that I've sold, yep. not the ones that I've bought and lost. Yeah. And I think if you invest in a high growth way in direct companies, you need to be prepared that you're going to make a lot of losses. Yeah, yeah. But you must be prepared to back your winners. Like you said, falling Let knives. Yeah, totally different. But if you're going the other way, people get spooked. Yeah. And that's been my big lesson learned. Yeah. Yeah. Great question, Trevor. Canadian Aussie. Also on Strawman, if you do want to check him out. Um, okay. So, Drew, what we might do is we might have a quick break and then we'll come back after this ad. So, Drew, we've got a question through from Aston. Yes. Is Aston a made up? name or is i feel like that i think it feels like it could be real i think that could be a real car. yeah yeah that's pretty cool um do you think ray's asx rzi is a good investment i noticed the share price at 53 cents currently is close to the lowest it's been and it's something i regularly use and invest in oh i didn't see the second part of this question yeah. <laughs> this is a loaded yeah this was loaded i feel like this is planted <laughs> Question goes on from Aston. Also, I bought zip shares at three dollars seventy-five. Sorry, Aston, I don't mean to laugh. Um, I want it, to. You didn't buy them at six, so it's all right. <laughs> yeah, I want to sell these. Should I wait till the price goes a bit higher, or best to sell now? I only bought one hundred and twenty shares. Well, you've given us a lot of information there, Aston. Just so you know, we cannot answer this question specifically for you. So we are just going to answer, generally speaking, about the companies. Just so you know. Um, I bought it at $6 and I don't even think about it anymore. Do you still hold it or did you get rid of it? I still hold it, but I just don't think about it anymore. You know where you compartmentalize things that happened in the past? (laughs) (laughs) Zips in one of those compartments and in the bottom drawer of my portfolio. Yeah. You never know. Someone's probably going to buy it. Who knows? At some point. $12.35. Founder, still founder run. Uh, Has been the whole time. Um... 
it's obviously the the key risk is that it's built an empire uh, locally and overseas, made a lot of acquisitions, and share count went up way up. So market cap is still four hundred and sixty four million bucks. Um, you know, in a tough economic environment, Australia overseas, it's hard for buying. It's going to be hard for buying our pay later businesses. They could try and increase prices, but then they might ratchet up more bad debts. Yeah. So Afterpay is the one that definitely got away with the deal by selling it to Block. I mean, do you, if you have something, so that your answer to this question is basically, if it's so small, you've lost it, you just leave it there. Just leave it. Someone will buy it so you don't have to worry about brokerage. Could you? Okay, here's <laughs> a question. And this is not like, we're not in any way saying this is specific to anyone, but could you sell it, lock in the tax loss, if you had that theory- Don't buy it back. Then <laughs> buy it back. <laughs> One that's potentially tax. That's not- Avoidance. It's not, no, it's not Division 4. I'm just doing it because I like to trade. Sure. <laughs> so Division you 4- gotta, yeah, I just got to make a call. Are you mentally able to deal with seeing that every day? If you aren't, get rid of it. That's like in my portfolio. It's like if, if it constantly reminds you of a mistake you made, we've all got that in our lives at some point. <laughs> you just cut it. But if, if it's not, then and you don't need the money. Well, why bother? That's not even thinking about the company. Um, you can talk about how great the company could be, but it's got as many risks as it has opportunities. So mm. when it's that small, we just kind of uh, – personally, this is not not advice or for, for clients. You just leave it. Yeah. Yeah. Um- yeah. Division 4A, just so people know, is when you make a decision to do something and it's only for tax purposes. Yeah. Uh, so people do that when they sell- Tax loss selling. Tax loss selling. Yeah. Um, yeah how did, I've got a feeling, it's a very up there suspicion that people still do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But- um, um, Don't confirm or deny. Yeah. <laughs> the other part of the question was raise. R-A-I-Z. Is it a good investment? I noticed the share price is- 53 cents. This was submitted about a week or two ago, so I'll just check that. But um, Raise, what does it do? It, Raise does, uh, it's a round, originally, it's the original Roundup app. It was called Acorns here in Australia for quite a while. Um, it's got a co-CEO model now. Uh, there was a bit of a board spill last year. And it's the, it's the this is the thing about Raise, Drew. And Raise is a business that you you just tap and go with your phone. You pay for your uh, chocolate at Safeway or what's it called, Woolworths, and you round up 50 cents, it goes into an ETF portfolio. Yeah. Really simple model. The competitor to this was Spaceship, and Spaceship looks like it nearly, can I say it, like it looked like it nearly blew up. Yeah. It felt like, I think the portfolio that it invested, it was an, the difference between Raise and Spaceship is- they were a super fund as well. Yeah, right? and they were active. Yeah. And they had basically no fees. It was like a lead gen tool to get, I think, into the super product. Yeah. Whereas Raise is stuck in the realm of we just take your money and we just invest it into an ETF portfolio for you. Now, I think Raise is a really interesting business, but full disclosure, I've recommended this business in the past and it's down 71% in a year. Um, the reason why I think Raise is an interesting business is they've managed to do something in finance that basically none of the other brands have figured out, which is how to get customers. And yeah. in particular, how to get retail customers. And keep them loyal, yeah. which is massive challenge. We're talking like- um, They went like, to Indonesia too. Yeah, they're yeah. in Indonesia, Malaysia. Um, so, Raise was originally called Acorns. And Acorns, for man, many of you will know, is the US brand of yeah. this app, right? But George Lucas uh, bought 
basically the intellectual rights to Australia, Malaysia, Indonesia, and a couple of other places. And the idea is that he basically got the technology and the idea, the branding, and that's why it rebranded to Raze when it became listed and done all this sort of stuff. And I asked George about this maybe a year and a half ago. You know, are you dependent on Acorns in the US? Like what happens if something changes, if yeah. they get annoyed with you or something? Like that? He said, to be honest, most of the code now has been rewritten and we've, or we've written over the top and it's basically our own app. We maintain it ourselves. And the thing about Raise is it makes money through a few different ways. It charges a monthly fee or an asset management fee, like zero point whatever percent. Um, but increasingly, they're doing things like um, they have raised rewards, which where you join the app, you might get insurance. Some benefits. Like yeah, it's like the Macquarie Marketplace. Or, yep. Yeah, that type of stuff. Um, the average balance of a raise account is between three and 4,000. Um, and that's up from between uh, two and 3,000 about 18 months ago. Yep. And what makes this really interesting is that they have a billion dollars of fun. That's not that's, a, big. that's not a small business. If this was a pure funds management business, you'd be like, wow. It's a pretty good size. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it ain't. It's a $46 million company at the time of recording. And I I don't know. I just think that there's a lot of latent price and power in there. Yeah. They can ratchet it up. Yeah. My concern with these is always going to be that what's the catalyst? Is, yeah. is it that pricing power? Uh, and there's so much competition. They, they've got a good stake in the ground but can they dominate do they need to go out and buy some of the other ones is that what happens um is it it seems like there can't be too many winners mm. in the sector and then the problem is you have a heap of competition that keeps the fee pressure yeah lower other people are doing it for free or probably or cheaper mm. trying to get trying to get customers so um it's always about what's the catalyst when i look at that sort of thing i agree um my thesis was initially that they don't lose customers but they can increase prices if they want to yeah and then the overseas businesses were basically just optionality. Yeah, yeah. yeah um but what's interesting i think is when they increase prices they've done it twice off the top of my head now so they went to i think if you get a custom portfolio something like four dollars fifty a month um when they increase prices they didn't really it didn't really have an impact a lot of people were saying oh no i quit and I went to somewhere else but I'm like to be honest I think there's still pricing power in here in the sense of if you've got $3,500 in your raise account it seems to be working for you you just let it go um, I think the, the if some, if they send you a letter and say we're increasing prices by $1 a month I just think for mental accounting you think $1 a month I don't care yeah. but then that could be a 25% uplift in revenue you yes. know and that's how I think about the economics of the business yeah but like you said, a, a business with a competitive advantage can't just have sticky customers. It also has to have pricing power. Yeah. Um, I feel like it's been tested a little bit, but we'll see what happens to the business going forward. Um, Brendan is uh, Brendan Cosio is on Twitter, if you want to follow him. Good fellow. Um, oh, that's Ray's. So I, I think it's one for the watch list in summary. That's, um, that's what I'd say. I think it's one for the watch list. Interesting business. It's got work to do, but interesting business. Uh, okay, Drew, I know you are all about this. So this is Joe, Joe Adelaide. Um, g'day, Joe. If you are in Adelaide, g'day. Uh, he says, hey, guys, love the podcast. Just wondering what your thoughts are on core lithium or smaller cap lithium stocks proving to be quite a volatile space at the moment. Cheers, guys. Always going to be volatile. Commodities in a this the market that's going on at the moment uh, and lithium's been on a it probably it feels like the last five years mm. it's just been on a 
up and down, up and down constantly. Um, it's like almost, say almost double, did I say double cyclical somewhere? That you've got like <laughs> the, the almost the momentum in pricing and discussion on lithium and batteries is completely different to the actual commodity price that they're receiving. Mm. Um, and then you've got uh, the challenge that I, I'm not sure about. I don't know a lot about core lithium, but I think they're still exploring. They're not yeah, I don't think at production yet. They're not like yeah, Pilbara that are, that are full production. Yep. Um, I just, I feel like a lot of this is generally momentum driven and people start following them when they're going up, um, which makes it trading stock each, each to their own. Um, but I'm more likely to hold something that's producing and pumping out income and has the ability to go and buy core lithium and expand their own business where you, you know you can plot the risk risk return potential of it a bit better than um than this because this is kind of a double hope isn't it that you're you're hoping the lithium price remains high and you're hoping that their production mm. and everything they do they can raise the capital that they need or they can get to the production they expect to be able to get to yeah it's a bit early stage than pilbara um Two, nearly $2 billion market cap. When I pulled the numbers on this a while ago, it was actually in the top 10 performing companies over the past 10 years. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, just because it had gone from, you know, basically nothing. What was it? In 2020, it was $0.04, cents, $1.10 now. Um, very, it's quite early stage. And you've got Pilbara, which is a big company now, north of $10 billion, that's chalking up a lot of uh, free cash flow, incredible free cash flow, how fast that's pivoted and people are thinking well this could be the next Pilbara yeah same thing they thought with lake resources not too long before it um I actually had Kenneth Chilgron self off live this week Wednesday night 6 p.m and I had a beer with Kenneth last night <laughs> that explains it <laughs> <laughs> one one beer yeah just one home early um so yeah what well, chatted to him and um the thing to keep in mind is that you can get an ETF exposure to this. The thing uh, that we talked about was that if you are exposing yourself to the thematic, you're going to do, if you have a diversified approach to it, you're, go, you're not going to do better than your best and than the best in the sector and you're not going to do worse than the worst. Yeah. And in resources, you tend to get a lot of losers. And there's a massive difference between the best and the worst in, yeah. in resources always. Yeah. And so core lithium... Yeah, I mean, I mean, it could be if I play devil's advocate here, I could say that maybe for a very small part of a portfolio, a very very small part of a portfolio, I am still trying to get in touch with the CEO to try and get him on the self love live show. But um, for a very small part, the ACDC ETF was the one that I was referring to with Kanish, and that's basically the way I took that conversation. Is um, the ACDC ETF has exposure to? lithium producers to uh, all the different kind of value chain as well, like from batteries through to storage, all that sort of stuff. Uh, I'd probably prefer to go with an ETF. Do you use it? ACDC ETF? Yeah, we do. Um, particularly, it was very topical, I think, lithium a year ago. It's probably topical again. Yeah. And and just the nature of the clients way we provide advice is that if they're super interested and they want to be invested in that battery sector, let's do it in the most diversified and kind of direct way possible without taking that. That's yeah. company idiosyncratic company risk. Yeah, um, where you can get a thousand percent return or minus ninety percent. Yeah, um, and the thing that happens to happen is um, with a lot of these companies that obviously lithium is everywhere. There's actually about a teaspoon in this iPhone here. Um, the thing is, uh, the thing that tends to happen is there tends to be a bit of a washout as well. Yeah. 
So you tend to have companies um, falter and then you can buy them cheaper in a few years or the, like you said, the bigger companies come in and suck those ones Double up. Double them up, yeah. Yeah. So that's like we see that with BHP all the time, right? Trying to buy MinRes at the moment. Um, yeah. Next question comes from SPP Hunter. Who asks about an SPP? <laughs> On an SPP offer, can slash should I sell all my shares before taking up the offer and replace them with the offer up to the 30K limit? What things do I need to be aware of? Make sure you don't sell them before the X date. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's probably good. <laughs> Make sure you still got the entitlement before you sell them. Yeah. It's probably the first one. Um, I mean, we have a simple rule in-house if there's an SPP or a rights issue or a capital raising, we won't be involved unless the discount's at least 10% to the to the share price. So okay. great companies will usually do it like 6 or 7% yep. because they know they can get money however they want. Um, it has to be more than 10%. And then you've got this arbitrage. We think 10% is enough for the kind of month or two that you have to be in, you know, unable to sell your, your new yep. shares. That's the way we've always thought about it. Um, and the other one would be, you know, if you hold three grand, don't apply for 30. Only, <laughs> yeah. only apply for how much you, it could be a good yeah. arbitrage, only apply for the amount you actually would be happy to hold afterwards. Um, and for sure, sell, if you if you know what you're going to get on the other side and you can make a 10% profit, yeah, sell the other portion. I would say one thing to be mindful of is also the tax situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, capital gains. Yeah. Because yeah. it might work out in the wash that you actually don't make anything. Yeah. So just be mindful of that. That's why you want at least yeah ten. Then you think if you're paying, as most of our clients have no tax because they're in superannuation, yeah. so ten percent is fine. But when you're in accumulation, thirty percent tax rate or fifteen percent tax rate, then you probably want fifteen percent discount yeah. before you get involved. Yeah, and uh, I find I get this question a lot when uh, investors are probably one to three years into their journey because they see this and they're like, oh, just free is, shares. Yeah, free yeah. shares. Yeah, or free money. Yeah. Um, have you ever had a bonus issue? Yep. I had one back in the day. I think it was with Shine Lawyers. Speaking another of another one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that's a good, good answer. Great question because a lot of people think that. Uh, Honey Badger. Great, great name. Honey Badger says, what should I pay attention to with Blackstone Minerals reporting next week? I feel like we've received this after. We could do a post-mortem on this perhaps if it's already reported. How do you value a small cap mining company with no profit yet? They look promising, says Honey Badger. I don't even know what... Blackstone. I mean, I should have looked this up. Normally, I do prep for these uh, Q&As, but I don't actually know. Um, is, this, is this the US company? No, it can't be. No, no, that's the... I had that's an issue with this one for a client, actually, that Blackstone, the private equity group, kept coming up in <laughs> yeah, their portfolio with Blackstone Minerals. Is it... What? Where is it? Oh, right down the bottom. Okay, sorry. I'm on tick. I'm on the ticket terminal here. I'm trying to find the thing. It's way down. Okay, so it's a two million dollar company. Um, I can't. I don't really have an opinion on Blackstone, just because. I mean, yeah, it's eighteen cents a share. Um, engages in the exploration and development of mineral properties. It says. Do you know anything about it? Uh, client reached out and asked me to buy some for them. Um, what do you do in that situation? Position size, position size, position size. Yep. Don't buy much. If you've got a million, maybe don't put more than 10 grand or something in it. Yep. Uh, hold it appropriately. And then obviously it probably went up significantly after he bought it. And he <laughs> wish I had told him to buy more. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's part of the job is to take blame as a financial advisor. Um, super hard, to, uh, hard to value, you know, if it's a, whether it's production or a uh, expiration asset. So production, mm. you're looking at all in cost of production. What are the trends in the commodity price? What are people forecasting? Um, and then one of the big things I see, not it's not probably valuing it, but working out 
if it could be a good company, shareholders who are aligned mm. and have a history in these sectors can be incredibly powerful tools to to understand it, what the prospects of that company is. It's like investing with other smart people or dumb people. It can be <laughs> both both options there. I think that's about all I can add. I can't. Yeah. Well, yeah, some pretty um, crazy forecasts for analysts in the ticker terminal. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I probably. Yeah, I don't know what's going on there. But um, what I would say is that a lot of these early stage companies just be aware, honey badger, of where you get your advice from. So uh, a lot of the reports that you will receive from brokers or from investment banks are written by brokers that do the capital raisings. So it's particularly for these early stage businesses, they need to build the hype so then they can. Pump their, like they pump their stock and then push new stock into the market and fund their operations. And that's, you know, there's a few major milestones for early stage mining companies. You've obviously got the tenements or wherever they're exploring, how are they going to co- cover that? Then they've got, you know, mining uh, engineering and design, how are they going to cover that? And then they've got to actually build the thing. How much is that going to cost? What's the MPV on that? Who's financing it? Then yeah. finally in production, you've got to make an assumption of the cost base which is usually based on the resource, how good it is, and then the commodity price. A lot of assumptions. And then you go further and further down that track, you reduce uncertainty, which is why you do see things like Pilbara Minerals that make it through those numerous hurdles. With every hurdle, it bounces up higher and higher and higher. And every point is uh, a probability. And I think best investors that I know think in terms of probabilities, and if you back that out, you get to a point where you find that the assumptions are too wild. Yeah. You just like, this is and a 30% probability. that's where you downgrades where yeah. the asset and then you get a fe- new feasibility and it's 30% worse than it was before or- Yeah. 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 So, you only need a hurdle, you know, it's going to, it's a one in two chance this is going to work. It's going to one in two chance this is going to work. It's going to one in two ch- And yeah. you're down in single digits, right? So, um, keep that in mind. Great question though, because the next question is basically the same one from Dan. When investing in a mining stock, what should I look at other than the financials, management, and commodity prices? Well, we kind of just- Answer a lot of it. Directors that have been in other good businesses, I'd probably add to it. I said shareholders in the last one. Uh, And then almost location to other key assets. So, you're next door to BHP, you're next door to Mm. um, Zinefex or what are they called? Zinefex? Yeah. Minerals. Lost Minerals, yeah. What are you near uh, and- you know, you're going to be able to get the production actually out at a reasonable cost. Yeah. Um, and this, Dan's actually, I think this with this question, it could, we, we just come off a bit more of a speculative mining question. This one is more of a, could be anything. So you could be talking about Fortescue, you could be talking about Vale, you could be talking about BHP. Yeah. And when it comes to that scale, it's a totally different question because these are sustainable businesses uh, in the sense of their financials. What I would be looking at as Drew, just echo what Drew said, is the um, management team. I think a lot of these companies have management teams that if you dug up the backstory, you'd probably be like, oh, yeah. You know, so um, one thing that I would be looking at with every mining company, just because this is my risk averse nature with it, is um, the cost base. You or just, the cost of production. You just you got to yeah. know what that costs because that is what's going to determine the fate of the company. Because what happens is during the mining cycle, when it busts, the big companies like BHP that have super low cost bases, they are still cash flow positive and they go to everyone and they look around and go, okay, who's struggling the most? Yeah. We'll take you. We'll take you. Thank you. And then they're just boosting their re- resource and um, reserves 
at the expense of other investors who have funded that growth. Yeah. So that's like Fortescue's all-in cost, um, I think last year was $15.90. And then this year, I think it's $18.50 odd. So, and I think it's going to go up a little bit more because of diesel prices. Yeah. So you got to then benchmark that against the iron ore price. The iron ore price has been very high for the past three years, but it looks like it's coming back down a bit. Definitely. So then you've got to bake that into your assumption. I think a lot of those big dividend stocks that are the minus Fortescue, Rio, BHP, we're probably going to see lower dividends in the next two to three years. Yep. Um, some of those. There's semi cycle, cyclical yeah. mining. It's always going to be like that. Uh, thankfully, China's always bailed out our economy when it's happy. It's going to happen again. Yeah. You know, the uh, Chinese economy is the only place in the world that's cutting interest rates at the moment when everyone else is increasing. <laughs> There's every chance to get another strong yeah. mining boom while the rest of the world falls into recession. And it's priced in US dollars. Yeah. So exactly. that helps. Um, okay, Pippa. Pippa. Good. This Good one's day. an old favorite of mine, too. Oh, okay. This is the question. We've got this is the second last question. I'm new to valuing stocks and loving your courses. Thank you very much, Pippa. Thank you for your work. I'm interested in getting an exposure to agriculture. I think there is a great long-term outlook for ag given the macro trends of rising incomes and population in nearby Asia region. In particular, I'm interested in the company Rural Funds Group. That's RFF. It's basically a company building land and water assets that are suited to beef, macadamia, and viticulture that they can lease to businesses to operate. And they call it a stapled trust, I think. Yeah. So it's a, a REIT or a real estate investment trust with an operating company. Yep. Yep. Uh, my question is, how would you value such a company? Also, a broader question, why do you think ag such an unloved asset class is such an unloved asset class? Should be interviewing Jamie on this, asking Jamie on this one, but I'll give yeah. you the, the cliff Jamie notes of this version. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we loved Rural Funds, held it for quite a, quite a long time. We've actually got an unlisted version called Arrow that had a very similar portfolio of property. Um, so essentially they buy agricultural property, lease it out for 10 or 15 years. I think the average lease on this one is 11.8. So 12 years is your average tenancy. Mm. Clearly that's great and, you, and your uh, vacancy is essentially zero because every property you have is always leased. Yep. Uh, how do you value it? This is primarily a REIT, so it's net tangible asset value. What's the value of the properties? Um, at the moment, it's $2.69, or the last, the 30 June, it was $2.69. And it's the $2 share price is- $2.29 now, share price. Yeah, so then it's, so what that's telling you is it's trading at a discount to NTA. So then you have to think, all right, does that discount to NTA mean they think the NTA is going to fall to $2.29, or is this a buying opportunity? Mm. Um, and then if you really want to value it, what you'd probably go and do is go look at, you can see what valuation they're using for each property. So what the cap rate is, which is you know, equivalent yield. Mm -hmm. And you can find out if those properties have, you know, if you think they're valued at 5.5% yield, but the rest of the market's trading at six, well, they're probably going to go down in value. Um, if it's the opposite, well, they may actually be set to increase in value. So net tangible asset for, for this type of group always. Yeah. As it definitely is like a heuristic, um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, they got hit by a short seller. I was gonna, a few yeah, years that, ago. a few years ago, yeah. that was like 2019. Yeah. yeah, 2019 fell from two dollars thirty-eight down to dollars sixty-nine, and I think that was based on overvalued assets. They what the issue there? Not the issue. It's quite a unique structure that the management company is. You know, the staple trust having the management company there, and uh, some of the assets are leased from memory to rural rural funds group, which right. is a separate group. Yep. That is also the manager. Um, so there's, they were saying that there's some operate, there could be some operational 
risk there if yeah. if the same tenant is sort of owning and leasing and operating it, it. That's what they said. And yeah. there was a bit of opacity, so you couldn't tell exactly what was going. Whenever that happens, um, unlisted as it's on a listed market, um, short sellers always look at that and this flick, wasn't flick their long lips. after. From memory, this wasn't long after Blue Sky as well. Yeah, yeah it was the follow up to Blue Sky. Yeah. So, um, and yeah. why not Ag? Yeah, why not Ag? Uh, it's probably more it's more cyclical than commodities. You'd have to think. Um, mm. The issue with agriculture, probably the same as commodities, is that uh, it's low volume. Oh, it's not low. It's low margin. You know, growing lettuces, you have to grow a hell of a lot of lettuces to make money. Yeah. Um, so groups like Costa will have an incredibly great period, and they'll have a bad crop season. Um, and then they have these other accounting rules. You've probably seen Sagara, I think. Jamie probably spoke about that. Mm, yeah. Uh, where you have to increase the value of your – so if you've got salmon, you have to increase the value of your salmon on your balance sheet as the salmon grows. But if it doesn't keep growing to the size you expect, <laughs> you're paying tax on the way up. Um, so you get these kind of lumpy changes in your asset base and you're paying tax on income that isn't mm. quite there yet. Um, I think it's just so seasonal uh, and listed equity markets aren't suited to – very, very long-term views. Agriculture, you need to think about it as 10 years. Yeah. And you have one bad season, your share price could fall 80% and you struggle to raise capital. Yeah. Well, that's um, like I, I used to follow the business quite closely. I don't anymore. Um, Jamie, uh, Jamie Nemsis appeared on the podcast recently in the masterclass as well. Um, was it, what was the family farm? Yeah. It was, was it, uh, um, no. Uh, uh, Sultanas. Sultanas, yeah, right. Um, so your margins are like eight percent yeah, right. profit margin something like that which is incredibly this, low you have to do a lot of volume to make any money this is a really interesting business though sorry just yeah. change gears again because um you the thing that i've liked about rural funds group is you don't have to actually own the most cyclical parts yeah you just it's like, like infrastructure yeah i think that was like rural co you know quite a few years ago even elders figured that out and kind yeah. of went into property and had all these different business models within the overall business yeah and I think that's the key here is you get exposure to agriculture while also, um, you know, having the protection of not super cyclical revenues. Um, it's perfect for retiree portfolios. You're, you're just buying another version of property. Yeah. It's hard to buy agricultural property in a smaller smaller space. You just want to make sure the value you're paying is fair. Yeah. And when you get to this, and another thing that happens is a lot of um, property, right, is intergenerational. The best property is intergenerational. Yeah. So, you do need to scale often to get good properties. Yeah. So, interesting. RFF is a symbol. Uh, finally, Sam uh, says, I have 100K coming up. Don't know how to save, protect and grow it. Very simple question. Very simple question. <laughs> I, and it'll always go back to what's your objective. Are you saving, protecting or growing? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's three there. <laughs> I'd, I'd probably say do a bit of each. So, you know, without knowing you personally, it's, you probably want to put some money away for emergencies, work out how much you need for emergencies, how much can actually be invested, and then what your objective is. Um, if your objective is to grow it significantly, then uh, build a lowish cost portfolio of assets that you don't have to think about. Hmm. Yeah, I like it. Um, I would say maybe... 100K uh, in this market, the, the last thing I would want to do is just whack it all down at once. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> you don't want to do that. If you're thinking, like we get this, I get this question a lot. I got a question the other day, wonderful question. Uh, someone was selling an investment property, basically all paid off. Um, it was a lot of money in the hundreds and hundreds of thousands. And they wanted just to put it all down at once. Yeah. Um, which is fine. 
We don't even do that when we get new clients now. Yeah. We'll step in to new investments over a series of months. Yeah, and yeah, it's it's fine to think that, oh, well, I've got to invest and this money is going to be dead money, but you can just park it in the bank for a little while yeah. and some interest. You get interest now, 3.5% yeah. for a term deposit. And then slowly just you know trickle it into the, the markets, whichever way you want to do that. If, if someone walked up to me in the street and said, here's 100K, I don't know what to do, I would say, well, probably I'd fix the second bit before I tried to- Solve the first bit. Yeah. So maybe think, well, like you said, break it up. How much do you need for operating expenses in your life? Yeah. You know, then, well, if you can't save, you probably want to keep it out of reach. So put it in, you know, you can use a term deposit or something like that in a different bank. There's no card attached to it. Um, the another question is like, do you have high interest debt? Yeah. You know, don't be, when interest rates are going up, you don't want to have. Credit card. Credit card and then- Personal put, loan. Yeah, get rid of that stuff. Um, but after that, step one, build a, build your base of your core assets. So those would be diversified, in my opinion, diversified investments, yep. low costs, what you can understand. And just build out from there. Don't, like a lot of people get this and then they think, I'll go and put it in, what was it? Uh, Blackstone Minerals or something like that. That's the opposite way around. You want to start with your low-cost options build out. Yeah. If you had, I don't know, if you had a little bit of money right now and you're investing for ten years, just uh, and you just wanted to make one investment in your core portfolio, uh, like you know the name names. What would you be looking for? I'd probably just buy Vanguard. Yeah. Yeah, it's like Australian Growth. shares or something like yeah. that. Vanguard Australian shares uh, ETF VAS is the symbol. Yeah, that might be one of them. Uh, I might go. You could even do VDHG, which is Vanguard high, uh, Diversified High Growth. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah, that's where I would start. Get that exposure to markets. Get used to it. Um, typically, a lot of our um, other podcast listeners on the Australian Finance Podcast, they might instead of having a hundred grand, they might have ten grand. Yeah. And I say, and a lot of them are interested in investing. And I say, you know what? Go and spend. I don't say this to him because I can't offer personal advice, but I just say I'd put nine grand into low-cost ETFs over time, and I'd save the other thousand for individual stocks. Yeah, and then that way you don't feel like you're missing out on individual companies, but you also get the Plan B, a pretty bloody solid Plan B as well. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, um, but it's a great question, Sam. Um, if you're new to investing, probably go and check out our Australian Finance Podcast, which is the blue one in your podcast player. You know, a lot of people listen to this podcast, don't know that one exists, and most of the people that listen to that don't know this one exists. <laughs> um, we need to do a better job of marrying the two, but that one's definitely for um, the beginner, the intermediate. This one's more advanced, and um, that'll be made apparent in the coming weeks as we have more experts on the show. Um, but these are the questions for today. If you want to ask a question, be sure to head to rask.com.au or any of the Rask websites, menu item, ask a question, select Australian Investors Podcast, Canadian Aussie, I'm talking to you, send us some more questions. I really did enjoy that one. That's good. Yeah, that's that's a good question. Lots of good questions today. Uh, Drew Meredith from Waddle Partners here in Melbourne, but does get around the country. Um, Waddle Partners- Too often. (laughs) Just come back today. (laughs) Flew in for this. waterpartners.com.au you can find out about financial planning uh, and get in touch with Drew we are actually heading to Noosa next week is it next week two weeks Sunday week Sunday Sunday week week. yeah that is around about the the 9th 
10th, something Ninth like that. 9th of October, yeah. 9th of October. If you are in and around Noosa and you do want to catch up with us, reach out. Live pods. Yeah, like we're doing, we're uh, going to the Inside Network event in uh, the Sofitel, yep. is that correct? Um, we'll be doing so, we'll be doing a, basically a day of podcasting while we're attending the event. Interviewing some financial advisors. Yeah, and some consultants and um, VC and some other people in there. It's going to be heaps of fun. Yeah. Um, but if you're in the Noosa area and you want to grab a coffee or a, something to eat, let us know. Miami Vice, if you <laughs> listen to my favorite podcast. <laughs> Hit us up. Yeah, we're, we're in the area um, and it's going to be good. So awesome. until next week, Drew. Well, the week after, whenever we come back, probably next week. Um, thanks for joining me, mate. Thanks again. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service. Designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.